This is an ABC podcast. Uh, you know, it's the first time I've noticed the hi-hats in that. Um, I think there's a, there's a bit where there, there's an open hi-hat that just sort of like that and then closed. I don't think I've noticed that before. Uh, This is the minefield, by the way. That's what that theme signifies. This is a program where we negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well done, Waleed. You're stuck to script. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Have you noticed the hi-hats before, Scott? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, I I, I really quite like our theme. I've got this dream, by the way, that, you know, one of these days we'll do the show not just with a live audience. I mean, we've done that quite a few times. But the theme is always inserted after the fact. You know, we just have to cue people up. We get them to, you know, artificially applaud because we haven't said anything uh, yet. But I've got this yep. thing. Well, wouldn't it be cool just to have a sort of a small band off there to the side and actually doing the, doing the theme live? Oh, and then the we Minefield can... House Band. Yeah, wouldn't that be good? Kind of yes, like a, kind of like a Johnny Carson set or something. <laughs> the problem is I think I'd rather be there than doing the show. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> I really like the um, idea. Hmm. We, do, we, do you call what we do here work? Yes. You do? I do. Because I think it's, it's interesting and it's important to distinguish between work and labor. Oh, God. Okay. Don't you think? Go on. Well, I mean, more. it is a difficult distinction sometimes to make. The, the idea, and this is something that my beloved Hannah Arendt explored at great length and not without tremendous controversy in her book, The Human Condition, but the various ways in which we in the West have distinguished or failed to distinguish between work and labor or different types of work. So it, it used to be, for instance, if we just think about the various ways of kind of dividing up human action, uh, there would be labor, which she described as being really not much more than what we would call, say, unskilled labor or the simply doing of tasks that don't have any end really beyond the performance of those tasks. They might be menial. They might be relatively unthinking. And the labor has no goal in doing those tasks apart from uh, the satisfaction of certain desires as a result of the payment that one gets for doing those tasks. And then there would be something a bit more like, uh, say, skilled labor, or we might even refer to it as work. So the type of labor that requires a degree of mastery, say you learnt it through the process of apprenticeship, so it, it needn't be, say, educated work, quote-unquote, uh, but it's certainly something that takes a degree of skill. It requires having learnt under the equivalent of, of a master, uh, someone to teach you the tools of the trade. Uh, and she usually, aren't usually referred to this kind of under the sign of utilitarianism. In other words, it takes a degree of skill, but it's the skill that takes something that is inert and useless and turns it into something that is useful and permanent. So she refers to this as uh, as the type of work that uh, is bound up with tool making and the uses of tools. So, you know, um, this is the type of work that would be, that would manufacture, say, at a, a table, a chair, or in our time, say, a computer or a robot or something like that. Um, and then there's then there's that whole separate dimension of work slash theorization that borders on uh, not really contemplation in the sense of sitting around thinking about high things, but thinking thinking about uh, forms of life, thinking about the kinds of principles and institutions that then make up the life that we have in common. And she would sometimes even refer to this as world-building thinking, uh, the task of constructing or coming up with different visions of a common world. Uh, And then off the side of that, she would refer to, um, say, political action. So political action is a distinct, different type of work that then uh, is solely oriented towards marshalling people's different programs, different agendas, different lives together, towards the achievement of something like a common world, uh, something like a, a, a political world. But I think what's really interesting to me, and the reason I wanted to begin with this, is each of those things, certainly in the way that Arendt thinks about it, they each end up working together in these wonderful ways. So, for instance, someone might create a table, which is a purely utilitarian thing, 
But that table may end up becoming a permanent object in the world around which people can gather and around which they deliberate and around which they come up with different visions of a possible world. And if you took that table away, they would have no reason to gather together. They have no reason to be together. Um, and so the table ends up becoming utilized for ends that are quite apart from the ends that were envisaged by the person who manufactured that. And so here she sort of delves completely into a Thomistic universe, in other words, deriving from Aristotle and Aquinas, about uh, penultimate ends, uh, the uses to which the person manufacturing thinks they're doing something, versus ultimate ends, the, the higher order of ends uh, around which people can, in fact, put that thing to use for the sake of something that really would be, say, a capital G good, rather than just a, you know, a small G good or a luxury. You, or the opposite. Or the opposite. Or yes, yes, precisely but, right. Because, of course, someone can also, a group of people can also gather around a table in order to conspire, in well, order to, to plan together traitorous plots for bringing down an elected government or for, uh, or for undermining the conditions of our common life. But I think what's... My well, first thought when you were talking about the menial labor stuff yeah. was that that's an account of that kind of work that only really rings true if it's devoid of meaning. Mm, that's right. So you, that work could be incredibly meaningful to you, depending on what you're making and what purpose you see it serving. Um, I do sometimes feel that we, in the way that we think and talk about work or jobs or careers, we do sometimes leave out the meaning side of the equation. This job is better than that one. Mm, mm almost as though that's an inherent property. And, mm. and I get what we're gesturing at when we say that. But actually, I don't know, this, <laughs> I'm loath to pick examples because as soon as you get examples, you, people get upset. But let's take the job of a cleaner. Um, depending on what you're cleaning and how much you care about that place, or indeed how much you care about cleanliness or whatever, I can, I can envisage a world where that is a, a better job with more purpose than a job that might be more, let's say, socially celebrated, mm -hmm. depending on who has it. Can I insert a little something there, though? No. Oh, come, come on, on. Come on, come on. Go on. Okay, this is fascinating to me. I, I can't believe you. We haven't talked about this. I'm so glad you mentioned cleaners. There is a problem, however, <laughs> with Ooh. this, and that's that so many cleaners and cleaning agencies have, in fact, been outsourced. So cleaners are no longer part of, say, the life of a particular institution, but rather an institution. Oh, I see. Yes, okay. Yes, so yes, yes. there was a fascinating collective uh, form of collective action that took place at the London School of Economics, oh, my Lord, coming up to 12, 13 years ago, where the LSE decided to subcontract the task of upkeep, of cleaning, you know, maintaining bathrooms, floors, vacuuming, whatever, to a separate cleaning agency. And there was a kind of outcry on the part of the faculty. And, and you can only imagine this in a progressive institution like the LSE, but I think it's, it's salutary, it's wonderful, where they said, no, these are part of our institutional body. These aren't people who are separate too, who are mere cogs in a wheel. These aren't Morlocks who come out at night and do the job and then disappear during the day. These are our co-workers. And through a collective form of action, which I believe from memory, I remember Craig Calhoun telling me this, which may have even resulted in strike action over a period of time, they brought cleaners back as, not as, they didn't subcontract things, but as members of institutional staff. So these were people who were paid directly, who were dealt with directly, because they were regarded as those who participated essentially as part of the core business of the LSE. So I think, Wally, there's a huge difference between that, that kind of menial, quote-unquote, menial task, which is infused, I think, with a degree of meaning if one regards the institution to which one belongs as something that serves uh, a good that extends beyond the sum total of the individual tasks that are carried out on its premises um, versus those who simply, okay, the agency tells me where to go and I do it in the same way that I would say clean a stadium or in the same way yeah, that I would well, clean a restaurant. You're dissociated from the, the ultimate employer. Yeah, precisely. Because you're not an employee. It's a, it's a different thing. Mm, that's right. So I think if, um, if you're stuffing boxes, for example, that, that may well be a menial task in the way that you were describing. Um, and yet 
a lot of people do that voluntarily for charities. Mm, that's right. For example, because I, I guess it's it's infused with an inherent worth. Um, um, it can also just mention though one of my dear friends. Um, he is a a welder and a fitter, and for the last thirty two years he has worked in a small suburban paint factory. Um, he describes the job that he does to me. It sounds awful, and he absolutely loves it. He absolutely loves it because for him, the task of what it is they make and the maintenance of the factory is indissociable from those that are being trained up into the job, those who have labored alongside of him in that job for decades. So I think there's, unless we're talking about things like ride sharing, uh, or unless we're thinking about some of the more exposed aspects of the gig economy, or those genuinely mindless, soulless tasks to which people are subjected and and which they would leave at the drop of a hat if they possibly could. I, I'm really reluctant ever to talk about menial labor in the sense of pointless, mindless, soulless labor. There are things that can be infused with meaning and purpose and even a degree of enjoyment and happiness. And at the same time, there are forms of quote-unquote highly skilled labor that can be received by people, experienced by workers, as being either soulless or soul-destroying. Yeah, I think that has to be true, doesn't it? But it's interesting that the way that the decoupling of meaning from work expresses itself. So I would say, although I, I can well understand there would be a counter to what I'm about to say, like it's there's more nuance to it than this, but I would say that's the kind of thing that is at play, for example, in, um, I don't know, the... Uh, in progressive circles about, say, the valorization of sex work, for example, mm -hmm. where what happens is in for that, the, the way the discourse proceeds is such that it says, well, this is a, a service like any other. In other words, it doesn't want to concede any kind of inherent um, value to the work itself or the subject matter of the work itself. That means it, for example, shouldn't be commodified or turned into something for which there is payment or, or whatever. It's the shearing off of broader meaning that is required for at least that version of the argument to be put. And I know there are other versions of the argument, but for that to happen. So it seems to me that this sort of, this move that regards work merely as the provision of service and the commodification thereof, so the value that's attached to it is really a value that the market assigns to it, et cetera. It pulls in all sorts of directions, doesn't it? Mm. It. You said before that the LSE response could only have happened in a progressive institution like the LSE, and I found that really uh, intriguing because, to me, the response, the argument they were making was a deeply conservative one. <laughs> interesting, isn't that interesting? That is, this is a an institution in which the people matter, um, and it has a certain kind of integrity and tradition. Um, and there's something organic about the way it has evolved and it can't yeah, just nice. be like rationalised in this way yeah, yeah. and turned into numbers and then you can't expect it then to, to be. that. That's undermining the very institution itself. Whereas in the case I was just citing of the sort of the, um, the recategorization of something like sex work, the opposite is happening there, right? And that is more a progressive political move, mm, which is to say, no, no, we will turn everything more or less into a, a service that can have a price attached to it and therefore nothing else should attach to it like shame or whatever. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm going down a road ro of political hang taxonomy. On. Let, me, let me just quite possibly, <laughs> let me just inflect two little things here. and then and Let's commit to that road. No, Excellent. no, no, yeah. no, not, not, not quite. I think the interesting thing with the LSE, I mean, it is a, uh, you know, it is and kind of still to some extent remains a, a Marxist institution. And for the most part, we don't really hear many people talking about the dignity of work, much less the inherent yes. dignity of yeah. work yeah. outside of a kind of Marxist ideological frame. Um, yeah, that point is well taken. Yeah, yeah. and, and so, so that's probably a little bit more, you know, even the menial. You know, this is, it's the same idea that motivated Simone Weil, for instance, uh, to leave her position teaching philosophy and to work 
among factory laborers um, because there was something inherently right, true, with a capital T, uh, about about doing so. Um, I think I think what you're maybe missing a little bit in what you're discussing with the recategorization of sex work is that it's more that the very fact that the principle of autonomy can be assigned to that profession is the thing which permits it to then be decoupled from any attribution of social shame. In other words, it need not be a profession that attracts uh, a kind of stigma or degree of social approbation. It can be a form of workerly empowerment and not just uh, subjugation uh, in the way that we would say still continue to attach a degree of shame to other professions. Um, What interests me, though, Walid, I like that we've just had this kind of general, fairly rambling thing about work here. This is, this is terrific. Um, it is really interesting to me that I'm not sure that we know how to think publicly, much less talk publicly about work. Um, the last three years have been fascinating because the way that we think about work, I'm, I'm not sure that the pandemic precipitated a new way of thinking about work as, as much as it accelerated a number of contradictory patterns of thought, or even accelerated a kind of growing um, trend. Um, We've heard people formally, I don't think they quite do as much at the moment, talk about the great resignation that's taken place over the last two years, namely millions and millions of people leaving work at what was previously described as being an unprecedented scale. Some of the research that's been done since then is maybe suggested that the great resignation isn't quite as great or quite as unprecedented as, as people thought. But I think one of the things that, that the pandemic, working from home, uh, professions, uh, jobs being upheld by means of wage subsidies, by means of furlough programs in the UK, by means of job uh, keeper programs here in Australia, uh, the, the ability to mix or intermingle professional life with family life, in a way that I think some people have found oppressive or stultifying or suffocating that other people have found maybe initially off-putting, but in the long term, kind of refreshing or even revelatory. I mean, it, it has seemed to, part- to precipitate a society-wide rethinking of the value that we assign to work. What type of work really matters? I mean, just think about our classification, for instance, of essential workers. The work that you and I do wasn't essential. Mm. Um, work and yet that, it was. And yet it was. And yet what we formerly would have described as, say, menial labor ended up being not just essential, but the type of tasks that fully fall into what Hannah Arendt described as the type of action that creates the conditions of a common world. I mean, well, they, yeah, they became newly heroic, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. Precisely because they put themselves in harm way, in, in harm's way, they engaged in forms of labor that were damn near heroic. Um, and and yet, even even the idea of heroism there became kind of problematic. I mean, if we think particularly, say, about healthcare workers and teachers, I mean, the rate of attrition in healthcare and among the teaching profession in Australia, in the US, in the UK, has been astonishing. Where, yes, there were sacrifices to be made. Yes, there were extraordinary hours that were done. And yet it was almost entirely unsustainable. And so even those workers who love their profession in schools, in hospitals, simply could not continue with it. And so it seems to me that there's been this big shakeup. There's been this huge reevaluation of what it is we value in work, what it is about work that gives it meaning. And even when a profession might seem to be the peak, the, uh, the summit of what one might aspire to, working in a hospital, working in a university, uh, teaching in a school, um, reaching the point where it's just not good enough. It's just not giving life the kind of meaning that I thought. And so we're also seeing people not just taking sharp career turns, but even stepping back from what we would regard as high professions into much lower professions because there's a certain degree of greater happiness in those well, lower yeah, professions. Well, yeah, placing it in the context of life rather than life in the context of work. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, yeah, but, which reminds me, did you hear about this phenomenon of quietly quitting that made the news? I did. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. So this idea that basically people are disengaging from their jobs and their work life and in the pursuit of work-life balance are basically just doing the minimum. Mm. So I meet these requirements, I show up at this time, I leave at that time, I do nothing outside of it. And when I'm there, I don't throw myself into it wholeheartedly um, necessarily. I do what's required of me and really no more, mm. um, unless perhaps I feel like it. And part of that is, it, this seems to be a post-pandemic thing, or we're in the midst of it still, but so the mm, post-onset of the pandemic, I mm. think, is the way to put it. Um, what do you, what do you it, think of that, Walid? Of the quietly quitting thing? Yeah. So I think it depends on the form it takes. So there are certain forms of it, the idea of, well, I'm going to switch off and this this time is no longer work time. There's something I think that Actually, it's really important to have been recaptured or reclaimed about that. Mm. Um, it's almost a I form of self-care. Yeah. I thought, geez, I hate that term. Anyway. Well, you yes, know what I mean, I though. guess it is. I do know what you mean. I'm not going to take in, you to task for in, it. In, in Michel Foucault's sense, not not in the kind of the lower sort of self-help. Contemporaries. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I the, – the worry I have with it is that I actually wonder if that's – in the end, not terribly sustainable and more exhausting than throwing yourself wholeheartedly <laughs> into work. <laughs> because just getting by doing the minimum in a job in which you're not engaged and setting that as your approach to it so that you're unlikely to become engaged. I think I've been in that place and it just made me more tired. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that I mean, maybe there's part of this is each personality has draws energy from different places, but... I find when I'm immersed in something, it energizes me, even at the same time as it might exhaust me. So I guess it depends which aspect of this quiet quitting phenomenon you're interested in talking about. The boundary setting thing, I think, yeah, that that makes sense and is really important. Um, beyond that, I don't know that I necessarily have a moral objection to it, but I, I, I just, I guess I'm not sure that the dividends are quite what is advertised. Can I just add one quick thing? Yeah. There's, there's so much in, in just that last little bit that you said. I found it so interesting. One of the reasons that I think it's almost impossible to talk generally about work is because it's so incredibly personal, almost, almost private. Um, work is such an individual thing. I see it as almost, almost impossible to discuss it and to discuss the feelings involved with it um, in any kind of general sense. Uh, because, you know, all sorts of things can be almost identical in two different employment situations. And yet the experience of it can be radically different because of the peculiarities of the particular people or, or of even sort of very, very slight things involved. Um, that's just one just immediate reaction. I've been thinking, though, a lot over the last three years, that boundary setting may in fact be overrated. So one of the complaints, okay. for instance, about working from home, quote unquote, is that you never leave work. Okay, that's one way of thinking about it. Or, or people who are so-called work martyrs and never really go on holiday. Um, I feel like sort of putting my hand up at this point and say, yes, guilty. Um, one of the one of the criticisms is uh, okay you're not indispensable and you may well it may just be some kind of affective performative you know you just want to be able to be in company and be able to complain to people about how overworked you are and there's a kind of, there's a form of kind of either humble bragging or or there's a martyr complex that's involved in being able to complain about just how hard you work and just how exhausted you always are um i mean of course there's something good and important about setting boundaries you want if you're with your children you want to be wholly present to them, I think, and not always have sort of, you know, work intruding or your phone pinging or, you know, your laptop on your lap, for instance. But at the same time, one of the things that working from home over the last three years has done, there are things that you can do during the day that you can't do at night. You can go for a walk. Mm. You can lay outside and play with your children you can go for a hike. You can enjoy, you, you, can, you can do things during the day that you can't do at night. There are various work tasks that you can do at night easily, just as easily as you can do during the day. And I think one of the nice ways that maybe the last three years has broken up 
the integrity of the workday is it's created opportunities for us to intermingle the private and work in a way that gives us the ability to give our best hours to things that matter to us outside of work and to simply then allow work to accommodate itself around the rhythms and habits yeah, of certain aspects talking of about family. boundary setting. You're just drawing the boundaries in unconventional places. Yes, yes, true. But that's still boundary setting. True, but I think sort of allowing what is of ultimate meaning, namely one's life, one's family, to intermingle with things that are of only of penultimate meaning, namely work, that can be an interesting way, I think, of infusing both with a degree of sustenance, of meaning. Um, that can be. It can also can be. Just it can destroy also be both. Just, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which goes back mm. to my point that work is unbelievably individual and personal, and the particular yeah, experiences but also of circumstantial, it. right? Circumstantial, and, be, yeah. and beyond your control. So, what you're describing applies well to someone in a knowledge economy job, yeah, or um, perhaps even a white collar corporate job where they can just zoom into meetings when they need to. And apart from that, it's more or less are you billing enough hours or getting through the work that's in front of you? But it's not the same if you work at a car factory. Mm, well, we right. don't really have those in Australia anymore, do we? But mm. you know what I mean. Mm. There are certain kinds of jobs, even in a hospital, right? Yep. The, um, certain kinds of jobs where that flexibility or that self-determination is taken away from you. Or, or teaching um, for that matter or shift work. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Right. Should we just bring in our guest? Yeah, why out? not? Sounds good. Let's do that. Our guest has actually kind of written the book on this topic. Jonathan Malesic is an essayist, a journalist, a former academic. He's the author of a fabulous book called The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you so much for having me. So, burnout. I don't know. I feel, I feel really morally conflicted about the very idea because I've seen so many times burnout be used as a kind of quasi-moral boast, um, as a kind of, uh, you know, when people, this is, this is the, the mythical performance review. So, you know, give me one of your weaknesses. Well, I feel that sometimes I'm a little bit too dedicated to my job. Sometimes I, I find too it, hard. I, some, sometimes I find that I just work a little bit too hard. Sometimes I'm too task-focused um, to the detriment of other things. And sometimes I feel that that burnout has become one of those things, when did anybody ever feel ashamed of saying that they were feeling a bit burnt out? I mean, surely it just means that you've done your job a little bit too hard, a little bit too diligently, a little bit too whatever. Um, at, at the same time, how can someone not feel ashamed if you're in polite company and someone asks how, what do you do and how's work going? And you say, well, as a matter of fact, work's been really easy lately. I feel that I've got everything in balance. I'm able to get a good eight or nine hours sleep each night. I'm not really feeling overly stressed by work. My tasks are easily accomplished. In other words, there's a kind of a shame that attaches to not speaking as though one is working hard enough, whereas I'm not sure how much shame attaches to the idea of burnout. Why? Why is it that you felt that it was important to, I guess, reclaim some of the dangers of burnout? Um, uh, rather than simply uh, lament the inadequate performativity of uh, of saying that one isn't working hard enough. Yeah, well, the reason is simply that uh, people are using this term in a very imprecise way that, like you said, often just is meant to to show off, to demonstrate that they are fulfilling the societal expectation that you be a good worker. You know, uh, certainly in North America, I don't know for sure about Australia. Perhaps uh, Australia is a wonderful paradise of uh, appropriate boundaries on work and, and leisure and, and all of that. But up here in, uh, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, you know, to be a a good worker is simply to be a good person. Like it's uh, it's kind of the one thing that everyone agrees 
is morally good and and righteous and it's how you prove that you're a good person you know through your hard work and that i think is why people are oddly eager to claim burnouts but in doing so they're they're using a term that has a precise scientific meaning but they're they're not using it in that precise scientific way so when psychologists study burnout, they measure it along three dimensions. One is exhaustion, which I think we're all pretty familiar with. Uh, and there's no stigma against uh, claiming exhaustion. When people say they're burned out, when people are bragging about being burned out, I think they're saying, ah, I'm working so hard and I'm so exhausted. But there are two other dimensions to burnout that psychologists measure. And the second one, after exhaustion, is cynicism or depersonalization. So that is where you become, you, you distance yourself from the people you work with. You are rude and frustrated with them. You are angry with them. You become a difficult person to work with. Very few people would claim cynicism openly for themselves. No one brags about how cynical they are. No one brags about how much they can't stand. The, well, they might <laughs> can't stand some of the people they work with. But, you know, you're not going to have a doctor publicly standing up and saying, boy, I really can't stand these patients. I just am tired of all these sick people and I wish they would go away. They no will one's say about say their that. colleagues, though, or their managers. <laughs> probably, probably, yes. And then the third dimension, I think, is the one that people are really not going to brag about. Um, but it's an equally important dimension of burnout. And that is uh, a sense of ineffectiveness, a feeling that your work is not accomplishing anything that you you are incompetent. Basically, you you feel that you just can't even do your job. No one brags about that. No one, when they're asked, oh, you know, how, how are things going at work, uh, is going to say, well, I, I'm accomplishing nothing. I'm, I'm trying my best and just not getting the results. No one says that. So we're very selective about what aspects of burnout we claim. Uh, but the, the, the complete burnout syndrome encompasses all three of those. Um, and if you had to claim all three to call yourself burned out, I think we would find many fewer people claiming that concept of burnout because it's unflattering to say that you are frustrated and cynical and incompetent. But we would just find different words for the same thing we're trying to say now, right? Which is, oh, I'm flat out or I'm under the pump or things are crazy or like we would shift the language the underlying imperative would be the same. And I, I feel like there are dual imperatives going on. When I say to you how, that I'm extremely busy, I'm saying to you, I'm not a free rider. So in other words, I'm doing right by you mm -hmm. and society and my employer and so on. And I'm not enjoying some kind of advantage that you're not. Um, so I'm saying that. Or I'm saying, look how in demand and great I am. So I'm either being selfless or selfish, and it's in the eye of the beholder how you want to interpret it. But whether you value someone who's selfish or selfless, you can read me into that, right? <laughs> you can, I can become virtuous according to whatever lights you want to shine or apply. So um, you're right about the, the dimensions of burnout that we wouldn't sign up to, but we would just refine it to something that's going to reflect well on us or at least um, remove the possibility of censure upon us. Yeah. Though I think, Walid, what you, the, the, the new terms that you suggested sound to me like they're primarily exhaustion. Yes. You know, exhaustion is the, is, it's okay to claim exhaustion um, because it's a sign that you have worked hard. And just like you said, it's, it's a way of claiming that you are a good contributor to society. Uh, yeah, you're not a free rider. You're, you're, you're a worthy person. And the, the other two dimensions of burnout, uh, you know, run counter to that. Can I just, can I ask though? Okay, so exhaustion we all, we all understand. And exhaustion would be, if you like, the common affliction of work slash labor in all of its forms or in most of its forms. 
The other two, cynicism and ineffectiveness, it seems to me, Jonathan, that they presume something about the nature of work or the nature of this particular type of work that's being described. So just think about the type of tasks or the type of jobs that we couldn't care less if the person doing it was cynical or not. I mean, I don't particularly want to know if the person who is preparing my falafel is hugely invested uh, in the particular task of getting the, the wrap folded just right. Um, I would like to know that they've, you know, got the particular toppings or the right sauces on, but I, I don't really care if they're cynical about it or if they feel at the end of the day that, um, uh, that they're somehow being ineffective. Both cynicism and ineffectiveness, they presume a degree of emotional investment in the job. They presume, is it too far to say, they presume a certain sense of vocation, that there's something about this where the task I do matters in some sense, and the ends of that task are to some extent consequential to me or matter to the way that I understand my life? Are we talking about very a very particular type of profession, and are we talking about a particular emotional relationship to that profession? Yeah, I think that the emotional aspect of it is important um, because, right, I mean, exhaustion, you can become exhausted doing you know, in principle, just about any kind of work. I think that, you know, the feeling of ineffectiveness uh, can certainly, th that could apply to any any kind of work. I mean, generally, you're trying to uh, accomplish something at your work. But yes, yeah, cynicism pr presupposes that you are working with other people, Uh and if you're working in a completely solitary environment, which I guess uh, in, in principle is possible, then I guess cynicism doesn't matter. You know, if you're not interacting with clients, customers, students, coworkers, something like that, you know, if you are, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine maybe like an independent artisan working alone in a shop and then you know, sending off the 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 products through the mail uh, to someone um, who they don't otherwise interact with, then, yeah, I guess cynicism isn't really doesn't really enter into it. But most everyone works with other people in one way or another and can have a cynical attitude uh, toward those people. Uh, and that can, you know, that can, in certain lines of work, it, it can turn into a, a real problem of productivity. If you are a cynical social worker, then that's a real problem because if you are cynical toward the people, if you are emotionally distant from the people that you are, your work is meant to serve, well, you're not going to be able to serve them very well. Uh, if you are a cynical teacher, that's going to harm your ability to reach your students. Um, and the, the whole concept of burnout really came onto the public stage in the 1970s, uh, just at the moment when the, the workforce, uh, particularly in North America, was beginning its shift to what it is now, which is a primarily service-oriented workforce. And burnout appeared as a way to, for these workers to explain what was happening, why they were frustrated and exhausted and tired and dispirited uh, with their jobs. So it was people who were working very closely with other people and whose personalities and emotions were kind of the means of production. Hmm. There's a distinction, though, that I, I think we've glossed over there, which is Yes, we might say there are certain modes of work where we don't care about the cynicism of the worker. But we do care when we are talking to someone about work and they would, they, if they were to say that to us, or no, put it the other way, we were to say to someone we know, I don't think I achieve anything in my job. Whether or not they care about how that affects the end product for them as a consumer, they're likely to regard you in a particular way for feeling that way about a job that you're sticking with. So it rebounds upon you in that way, that sort of social estimation way. The obvious retort would be, 
well, then get a different job. What, why are you doing this? Why are you persisting with something that you yourself regard as, as meaningless? So I think it's not so much the practical or market-based consequence of cynicism that is at play in the way that we as a society build meaning or our understanding of work and its place in our life. It's more, I suppose, the moral dimension of it, right? It's not a failure to be busy and overworked. That's a sign of success and virtue. Cynicism is a sign of failure because it shows that you are, I don't know, insufficiently active as as an agent or somehow just capitulating to a a system that you should be resisting or whatever you want to put around it. But you could describe it in moral terms. That's what makes it different, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I think the, you know, in, in addition to what cynicism might, how cynicism might affect your productivity, it also just feels bad. Like it's just bad to be <laughs> cynical and frustrated and angry all the time. Um, you know, I used to be a, a full-time tenured professor of theology. Uh, now I'm a part-time professor of writing and I, I, you know, I became burned out and I, I was very frustrated and it felt bad. Um, it, it doesn't feel good to look at your students as problems, as obstacles in the way of you doing what's really important. And yeah, right. It is, it is uh, arguably immoral uh, to view them in that way. Uh, and so addressing the problem of burnout is there's perhaps an objective dimension where uh, a burned out worker is not probably not doing their job very effectively, but there's also a subjective dimension where it, it just feels horrible <laughs> and uh, to, to go around being frustrated constantly and, and angry. And, uh, the, and, and that's a, a reason to, you have to try to prevent burnout and, where possible, uh, heal it. So let's, let's think about what role, what place work ought to have in our lives. And, I mean, I'm using ought there in its sort of fully uh, morally loaded sense. Um, I mean, one of the things that has been diagnosed consistently, and this is one of the first things, I guess, that struck me when I first read uh, Henry David Thoreau's great book of moral philosophy, Walden. He said, you know, the members of his, of the town of Concord, near where he lived, he said, they all worked as if they were indentured to a particular end, not fully realizing that they had self-selected that end. He even described their patterns of work as, as if they were performing a kind of penance, as if they were trying to make up for something that they had done. Um, most people would probably describe work for them not as something necessarily they take a huge amount of pride in or find a huge amount of meaning in inherently, but rather as serving some end. It might be affording a house, which is particularly relevant in Australia at the moment. Uh, it might be providing for a family, or it might be some very rich sense of public good. Uh, and yet at every point, there would be something about that particular style of work, that particular I mean, I'm contacted almost weekly by ac- academics, for instance, who are desperate to get out of academia because they find the institutional life of the university so suffocating, so detrimental to the profession that they have chosen that they want to try just about any other form of work where they can express the skills that they've acquired over their professional lives. Um, so, Jonathan, what what place should work and the sense of... I mean, is it right to find fulfillment in one's work? Or is that just an alibi that we use for not placing sufficient meaning in our aspects or forms of life that are outside of work? Yeah, I, and I think that I, I like that you began uh, this this question by referring to Thoreau, who I also love. And, you know, Thoreau says that you know, we've become tools of our tools. You know, we had this 
goal that we wanted to accomplish uh, with these tools that we have, but we end up kind of uh, that were meant. Uh, we turn the, the means into an end, mm-hmm. basically. Um, if he were and, writing and, now, Thoreau would have said, "We've become apps of our phones," and I think that's that's probably <laughs> just about right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and you know, I I first read Walden. You know, I, I was not a, you know, long-haired teenager reading Walden, you know, late into the night or something like that. I mean, I first read Walden when I was in my mid-30s, and I was so struck by this book uh, that it was so much about work. I was, I, I read it because I was interested in problems of, in work as a moral and spiritual problem, basically, and um, I I looked at Thoreau and, and was like I said, I was really shocked to see that, yeah, on almost the first page, uh, he's talking about, like you say, the the work, the labors, the Herculean labors that the townsfolk uh, in Concord are, are undertaking. And, I mean, a big lesson of Walden is that work should take up a lot less space in our lives. Thoreau doesn't brag about his exhaustion. He doesn't brag about his burnout. He doesn't brag about how many, you know, the long hours he's putting in. He brags about the fact that he figured out a way to support himself working only about six weeks a year. And the rest of the time he had free to do whatever he wants. So he was at liberty while, you know, his neighbors were laboring in order to feed these oxen who were going to grow crops that were go- they were going to sell so that they could buy meat, you know, and in these cycles of work and consumption, Thoreau says, well, I don't like working. I don't want to work for these questionable ends. I want to spend my time, you know, observing nature. I want to spend my time in contemplation. And he said, well, you know, if you want, if those are the ends that you should seek, and he does think that they are, then you can do that by working a lot less. And so I think that the lesson for the 21st century is to identify those things that really matter to us and figure out how we can put a greater priority on them, which may entail putting lesser priority uh, on work. Just because work Indeed, takes up so a, much time. Right, but what you're talking about there, I guess, is a, a general ordering of um, priorities and emphasis in one's life overall, right? And as a theologian, I guess, Jonathan, you're well-placed to draw on a whole lot of resources to make that argument, you know. There's another world, and I see this in religious discussions all the time, actually, where the the person who is working so hard is actually morally deficient because what they're doing is succumbing to their attachments to worldly things, right? What, why are you working so hard? It can only speak to, unless there's a particular thing about the work, right? You, you perhaps wouldn't say that about someone who works in the service of other people who really need that service or something like that. But like, generally speaking, as a, as a career thing, it's an indication that what you prize is ultimately materialistic, right? And the virtuous person is the person who could work more but doesn't that is, could get more material benefit, but chooses not to because they're pursuing something higher. Now, you might then call that other thing that they're pursuing a form of work as well in the sort of broader way that perhaps Scott was discussing right at the start of the show. But nonetheless, what's interesting about all of that is that that makes sense within a kind of theological framework, but it doesn't make sense within a capitalist framework where the only way we can assess life really is on the basis of material accumulation, perhaps, or material well-being. And it doesn't make much sense within a Marxist scheme either, where the worker becomes the embodiment of virtue because they're workers. And so there's something that is expected of the worker that has a political meaning and a political resonance. You really need a form of, I was going to say immaterial, is that the right word? Non-material? Um, Trans, politics transmaterial, or, really. Transmaterial. Uh, no, really in the sense not, of being transcendent. <laughs> no, not really. Um, but you need something that that transcends mm. the material in order for this really to hit home, that really to be taken on as something that that you would live your life by. That work is something we we can subordinate 
in some other way. Otherwise, the only narratives we really have on offer seem to suggest that the person who is not working is cheating somehow or failing. Yeah, and I think that you you see the the problem or the contradiction in workers who are already wealthy. So people who have mm. plenty of money, who are well provided for, who earn a high salary or, or high uh, hourly wage, oftentimes they're the ones working the most. And, you know, they're, they're often the ones putting in, you know, the 80-hour weeks. They, from a, from a totally materialist perspective, they don't need to do that. You know, their, their families are well provided for. And so the continuing to work from a material perspective is totally irrational. And now they might claim that, that, yeah, that they find meaning and value in it. But, you know, you can find meaning and value in a lot of other things. Um, and you could find meaning and value in a lot of things that are not so exploitative as a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the really remunerative work that we do is. And, you know, but we have this really constrained moral imagination. We kind of can't imagine anything that doesn't count as work as, as being worthwhile. Um, we just kind of call anything that's worthwhile work. That's how we, that's how we honor it. Um, and it's how we honor people by, you know, by praising them for their work. But, um, of course that, that's not necessarily what makes someone morally praiseworthy. Well, I think, I mean, just to wrap up, I mean, you're absolutely right. And the fact that you just dropped the word honor at the very end of the conversation, I think that's exactly right. Bragging about work and being successful at work is one of our last forms of socially acceptable honor in the ancient sense. Whereas doing without work, or trying to put work in its place, or deliberately choosing a form of work that one might find immensely inherently meaningful, but which doesn't attract the same claims of exhaustion. Um, that is still often, and uh, of course, unemployment is regarded as positively shameful, as derisory. I mean, one of the things that seems to me we absolutely must do is to decouple work from honor and to, re and, and to decouple uh, any limitation of work or choosing of lower but inherently meaningful forms of work as being necessarily shameful. I'm not sure I can go that far. I, th I don't think you want to decouple work from honour in toto. Hmm, interesting. That seems to me a risky enterprise. But that's another show. I hate it when we do this. We always end up in this situation where we need to do another show. Anyway, Jonathan, you're booked whenever that happens. We okay. are out of time. I refuse to work a second more than I have to, so we're going to end it here. But um, thank you so much for helping us out, Jonathan. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. That's Jonathan Malesic, essayist, journalist, former academic, author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you soon with another one. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.